Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you gather our hearts, not simply in prayer, but in loving kindness to receive your wisdom, your mercy, your generosity, and to lift us up in these especially challenging times. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right. Uh, it is such a pleasure and a privilege and an honor to be here uh, in this pulpit, in this place. Um, I spent many years worshiping here in these pews. Uh, it is a very special place in my life. Um, I think about the times I've been here. My oldest son, Noah, was baptized here and during the Easter vigil where Jonathan's predecessor, Peter Gomes, would set up fire on the steps of the church. Because he was like that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm also mindful of this space and place, this place that had forged me not just as a person, but as a student and a scholar. Um, my teachers that were here, I see some of them here, like Preston Williams, the great Preston Williams. Um, I think about my teacher, my friend, my mentor, Cornell West, for whom I would not be here at all if it were not for his guidance and grace. And I look out here in the audience and I see, I guess you're not an audience, you're a congregation. Dear friends, people I love and I know that love me, like Courtney and David and Kamala and Jim and Laura, stepmother, Nancy, uh, Amy. It's humbling to be here. And I also want to say a word of thanks to the ministerial staff, you know, Alana and Eric and Elizabeth and Nancy and especially to Cecily and to Jonathan. I hope you all have a deep sense of who it is that leads you here. You know, my brother Jonathan Walton, we've known each other for a very long time. Um, many ways we came up together. And he's supremely gifted, not just as a preacher, not just as a, a leader, but as a, as a decent human being. You know, in this day and age, to be led by decency is remarkable, let alone miraculous. So I want to thank Jonathan for that invitation and for the, really, the miracle of what you've done to this place. I should also say, you know, I, I, um, I sang in the choir in the late 50s, maybe. It was a long time ago. Um, and so again, like, you know, I've, I've spent much time in this, uh, this beautiful space. So I come to you today as a Christian and as a Confucian, which means that I am born of traditions of love and traditions of ethics. But I also come to you today as an immigrant, and I, this is important. Given what is going on in our times, given what is going on in our culture, it is important to pronounce oneself and one's status. I'm an immigrant, proudly declared as so. 
knowing full well how precarious it is to say those words out loud in a moment where fathers and mothers are taken away by ICE when they drop their kids off at school, happening all across the country, sanctioned, sanctioned by our federal government, changing our common life and common lore to one of terror and danger and not of welcoming. You know, I'm an immigrant and I'm, I came to the United States in 1966, a year after the passage of the uh, 65 Naturalization Act. And one of the arguments you can make about the 65 Immigration Naturalization Act it is, is that it, it's, it is arguably the most important civil rights act that we have. Why? Because it changed the nature of the demos. It changed the nature of the American people. And so I come to you as an immigrant because I have a profound indebtedness to this country and for the opportunities here. But I also come to you as somebody that knows that that gift was not an easily forged one. You know, I come to you here to talk to you today about love, and I can only speak to you about love because somebody loved me. I am the son of Charles and Anne, stupendous supreme parents. I am the brother of Helen. I am the father of Noah and Josiah, a family that taught me to love and how to love, often in very difficult circumstances and very difficult times. So why talk about love now? You know, I'm mindful that this is the second week of Lent, and as Jonathan reminds us, that many of us associate Lent with a time of, let's call it, deprivation. But I think about Lent as a time to remind ourselves of our humanity. You know, the word Lent, um, some argue, comes the word Lenten, to lengthen to lengthen, but also to slow things down. And one of the things I think has to happen in this frenetic world is that we need to slow ourselves down long enough to remind ourselves of our humanity, to remind ourselves of our imperfections, to remind ourselves of our brokenness. Because when I talk about the terror that's besieging us, immigrants and otherwise, the terror that's besieging us in our schools, the terror that's besieging us in our churches, in our mosques, in our synagogues. I think that we need to be reminded of our humanity and our fragility. And we need to be reminded of the need for love. You know, I, I began this project on love driven politics a few years ago, largely in response to what I, I and some others perceived as a fundamental breakdown in our political and moral culture. Our politics had become acrimonious, had become bitter, had become cynical. And this was before the election, really. Things have gotten even worse since then, and I didn't think they could get worse. And so we made a proposition. 
in the Love Driven Politics Collective. What if we could imagine a political culture that was not oriented around the pursuit of power, primarily, but a politics that was oriented around values of love, where love means something like compassion and generosity. Love means something like forgiveness and mercy, where mercy means bending our hearts towards suffering. Imagine a politics where we insist, whether it's electing officials or organizing ourselves around issues, where we insist that we bend our hearts towards suffering. So what has to happen then? If we begin to imagine a politics like that. Well, part of what has to happen is to understand what it is that we face. You know, um, I'm mindful of the kind of calendrical peculiarities of this Lenten season and the events that have happened around it. Um, you know, Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, coincided with Valentine's Day this year. And then, of course, on Valentine's Day, we had that terrible heartbreak in Florida in that school. Shortly followed by the Lunar New Year. And not for nothing, the premiere of Black Panther. And I mention that because uh, we're experiencing this peculiar combination of evil and joy, of tragedy and elation. And, you know, we can get sucked into thinking that the world is just hewing one way or the other. When the shootings happened in Parkland, in Florida, of course, most of us said, not again. How could we let this happen yet again? And at the same time, you could enter a theater, as I did, in Oakland, California, and watched the Black Panther in a multiracial community that was just filled with pride and happiness and enthusiasm and thinking, we are more than this. We are more than this. You know, the, the message of Lent, again, is to remind ourselves of our partiality, the partiality of which we perceive the fate that befalls us, but the partiality which we understand the struggles that challenge us. You know, we, I asked this reading from Mark, because you know, I feel sorry for Peter. He wants to do good. He wants to be the one out there, being the evangelist, the one saying, let's build an altar. Let's tell everyone about this. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're fixated on, not on divine things, but on worldly things. Which is a, a reminder that in this Lenten season that we are often confused about our priorities. We're often confused about 
where our hearts should lie and where our hearts should be directed. And so the proposition about love-driven politics in this moment is to say enough, enough, enough with craven pursuits of power. Let's take the risk of finding some compassion. Let's take the risk of generating some generosity. Now, where might we find examples of that in our time? And you know, the most obvious example, recent example of a loving response to this moment were those incredible high school kids in Florida, where they said, never again where they said, our grieving, the incredible young woman, Emma Gonzalez, said, our form of grieving is to fight back, is to say never again, is to hold those responsible for the weapons finding their ways into evil hands, to get them out of office, and to remind a nation that the least amongst the most important least amongst us are our children. Emma Gonzalez and the others in that school love themselves enough to say you should we should be loving them more than we have. It's a sorry time. But of course this isn't the sorriest of times. And we can feel like uh, this is the worst of times. But of course, things have been harder before. You know, in these days of darkness, I'm reminded so much of the legacies, the freedom legacies that we inherit from people like Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer and Grace Lee Boggs and Malcolm X. You know, when King, in his great sermon, Shattered Dreams, he said, you know, one of the things we do in the face of the relentless horrors of segregation and Jim Crow and white supremacy is to fight off bitterness, is to fight off cynicism, is to keep at bay the things that are keeping us from loving. Let me read you a few words from King. King says, must we respond with bitterness and cynicism? Certainly not, for this will destroy and poison our personalities. Must we, by concluding that segregation is within the will of God, resign ourselves to oppression? Of course not, for this blasphemously attributes to God that which is of the devil. To cooperate passively with an unjust system makes the oppressed as evil as the oppressor. Our most fruitful course is to stand firm with courageous determination, move forward nonviolently amid obstacles and setbacks, accept dis- disappointments and cling to hope. Our determined refusal not to be stopped will eventually open the door of fulfillment. And he continues, we need to remember what he calls the secret of the survival of our slave foreparents. In spite of inexpressible cruelties, our foreparents survived. When a new morning offered only the same long rows of cotton, sweltering heat, and the rawhide whip of the overseer, these brave and courageous men and women dreamed of the brighter day. They had no alternative to the hope of freedom. In a seemingly hopeless situation, they fashioned within their souls 
a creative optimism that strengthened them. Their bottomless vitality transformed the darkness of frustration into the light of hope. Where are we finding that vitality in our times? Where are we finding that hope? And again, I, I, I ask these questions in a moment where it is our children that are chastening us, that are telling us to pay attention, that are telling us not enough. It, are, it is women who have been subjected to relentless harassment who say, me too, that are reminding us of the complacency and the complicity so many of us have been party to in their suffering, in that violence, in that oppression. We find vitality in Black Lives Matter. They're reminding a nation still enamored and enthralled by white supremacy that there are black bodies and brown bodies being annihilated every day. And it's important to hold Black Lives Matter over and against what's the response of, of what happened in, in Florida because many, many, many lives have been lost. You know, one of the reasons that we argue for a love-driven politics against a, a politics of power is that a politics of power is about annihilation. It's about friend and enemy. Where annihilation literally means to make the other nothing. As opposed to a politics of love that says, let us lift each other up. Let us see each other's humanity. Let us hope for more, even as our dreams are shattered and thwarted. You know, we had a thoroughly engaging conversation downstairs in the Faith and Life Forum. And um, one of the participants, David, asked me about the application of love. We started talking about the grand love ethic of love thy neighbor, which I pushed a little further and say, well, what do we do about loving thy enemy? And David said to me, asked me, are you telling me I need to love someone like Donald Trump? I said, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And one of the things that we have to come to terms with is to understand why it is that we find it so hard to love somebody that has done perpetrated evil. What's in our hearts such that we cannot find anything redeemable in another human being, even one who has been responsible for atrocious and horrendous things. Because one of the tasks of a love-driven politics, one of the tasks of living love out loud is to remind ourselves that we are in need of redemption. We are in need of a love that has been missing in our lives. And it's only under those, that precondition that we can even begin to imagine loving one's enemy. And the proposition of loving one's enemy is a proposition 
to resist the cynical. Where cynicism is keeping our hearts away from life. It's keeping our hearts away from our humanity. It's, a, it's not just mannered irony. But again, bitterness, resentment. And so much of what we're trying to do in love driven politics, so much of what we're trying to do in living love out loud is, as we heard from Isaiah, is to breach, repair the breach. Repair the breach, not just between us, but repair the breaches within our hearts. To love one's enemy is to recognize that there's still something redeemable, even in those who have been responsible for evil. You know, reminded of the, one of the concluding scenes in Lorraine Hansberry's great play, A Raisin in the Sun, where the son Walter has lost and squandered an insurance settlement, his father's legacy, the inheritance of his legacy, and his sister Benita, who's the ambitious one, she wants to go to medical school, says to the mother, to mama, because she's furious, love him, love him? You know what mama says in response? There's always something left to love. There's always something left to love. And if you haven't learned that yet, you haven't learned nothing. There's always something left to love, even in the contemptuous folks that we oppose. Because as a Christian and as a Confucian, as a son of Charles and Anna, and father of Noah and Josiah, I have to believe that each of us is worthy of redemption, which is to say that each of us is worthy of love. Because to do otherwise is to give up. To do otherwise is to give up hope. And I simply am not ready for that, nor should you be. That requires a level of maturity, of spirit, to give up the adolescent clinging to the idea that life will just always turn out well. You know, I mentioned my teacher, Cornell West. Uh, Cornell and I taught a course together at Union Seminary a couple years ago called Radical Love. And one of the working definitions we had about for radical love was the idea it, meant, it means to learn how to die. Which is to say, radical love means learning how to let a part of yourself go, let it die so that you can love fully. For those of you furiously angry with this administration, for those of you furiously angry with the white supremacists out there, for those of you furiously angry at what is happening to our fellow citizens and neighbors. I'm asking us to find forgiveness, not just, not forgetting, but forgiveness. Finding something left to love in folks. Why? Because 
We're not the last ones here. I need to love this way because I am the father of those two beautiful boys. The uncle to my niece and nephew. And I cannot leave this world in this condition to them like this. But I also cannot let us be, let's say, a bit lazy and complicit with what's going on. It's because to hold on to the anger, to hold on to that evil is to be complicit with it, not to fight back. You know, I was, I was trying to think of um, what the original Christian hashtag might be. Not just Me Too or Black Lives Matter. But it might be something like God so loved. God so loved. It's a story of sacrifice and story of hope and a story of redemption. There is so much that we should be hopeful for in this moment. Um, after I leave here in Cambridge, uh, I've been invited by the Reverend William Barber to join him and Cornell in Selma uh, to be a part of the Poor People's Campaign. For those of you who do not know the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Reverend Barber has revived King's last great effort. May will mark the 50th anniversary of the Poor People's Campaign that King started in 1968. Uh, Reverend Barber, Reverend Liz Theo Harris, Reverend Jim Forbes have been organizing across 29 states, uh, bringing together folks from different races, classes, religions, to say the poor are our highest priority. And to insist on a loving campaign where an economic critique of capitalism is wedded with a moral critique of white supremacy and racism. That's the call of our times. That's the call of our times. The civil rights movement didn't end in 1968. The fight didn't end there. All the fights have been going on. So, let me just end with a few words, because I love words. You know, I, we, I talked a little bit already about maturity and forgiveness. But I also want to leave you with the words confidence, courage, and comfort. Where confidence, the root of the word confidence means to come with faith. And courage, the heart of the word courage is to come with one's heart. And comfort, comforte, means to come with strength. The call to love is not just a humble call, but the call to love is to say we show up in times of struggle. We show up in times of evil. We show up knowing that so many came before us to give us confidence, courage, and strength. With that, I say, Amen.